the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, largely ignored for decades, frighteningly high sliding boards unite and apply for membership in the Scary Dreams Union. September moons and limber gnomes. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Once again, we have double the Koreas on this week's podcast. Not north and south, but the twin kingdoms of Bang Bang and Chop Chop. First is part two of our two-part interview with Larry Correa talking about his great new short story collection. That one's called Target Rich Environment. It's a bunch of great stories, and Larry talks about all of them. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. First, here's the news. We have a couple of amazing new editions of great books for September. These are books we've brought out in spiffy new covers and new formats. In this case, the format is trade paperback. Those hardcover size paperbacks, that's what those are. These are worth checking out if you have the older editions and especially if you want to discover these fine writers for the first time. First is Sheep Farmer's Daughter by Elizabeth Moon. This is the Deed of Paxinarian series, book one. In a feudal world of swords and sorcery, Paxinarian, Pax for short, refuses her father's orders to marry the pig farmer down the road and is off to join the army. And so her adventure begins, the adventure that transforms her into a hero remembered in songs, chosen by the gods to restore a lost ruler to his throne. Also in September is a new edition with all new art of the first book in Wen Spencer's Elf Home series. That's right, Bain is bringing out Tinker with all new art and in trade paperback format. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wards chase an elven lord into her scrapyard, life as she know it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the elven court, the NSA, the elven interdimensional agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Tinker by Wen Spencer and Sheep Farmer's Daughter by Elizabeth Moon are now available in great new trade paperback editions at booksellers everywhere. This is part two in a two-part interview with Larry Correa discussing his short story collection Target Rich Environment. Part one is available on last week's podcast. I want to welcome Larry Correa to the podcast. Hello, Larry. Welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me on again. Uh, Larry Correa is an award-winning competitive shooter, a movie prop gun master, and was an accountant for many years. He's the creator of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times best-selling Monster Hunter series. 
with the first entry, Monster Hunter International, as well as Urban Fantasy Hardboiled Adventure Saga, which is a lot to say, but that's what it is, the Grimnor Chronicles, which is really, really good, uh, little, good little series, with first entry Hard Magic, and epic fantasy series, The Saga of the Forgotten Warrior, with first entry Son of the Black Sword, and upcoming very soon now, uh, probably available in it in EARC very soon, now that we have, have got the copy edit done, is uh, House of Assassins, the sequel to Son of the Black Sword. But out now at Booksellers is Target Rich Environment, which is, I, I think it's the first short story collection that you've ever done. Is that correct, Larry? Yeah, this is. This is my very first short story collection. So really excited for it. So you wrote three books, which is, you know, and they're fairly long books. So, you know, you probably got 300, 400,000 words written in this world. Um, what makes you then want to write a couple of short stories or even more? Uh, is it that the thing is just buzzing with you? Is it, I mean, you get asked to, of course, that's another reason. Um, and and how, do you, how do you bring it for the short stories when you've got so much background that you, that you know? Well, one of the things is you do so much world building to come up with a series like that where you just you just spend hours and hours and hours thinking of stuff like if this happened then what? If this happened then what? If this guy did this instead of this in real life, what were the repercussions? And so you start thinking about all that stuff, but but the problem is, you know, 80, 90% of that will never wind up in the book. It's just extraneous information. But as the author, I've still got that in my head. And it's like, "Oh, that's cool. Like what if, you know, that there, there, there's a whole, there's all these little stories that spin off as you do it. Um, and then the cool thing about it is that I, I can do a short story set in one of my worlds. It's not as big a time investment. I mean, it takes me a few days to write a short story or a week if I really, am, you know, if it's, a, if it's a long one. And uh, I can play in different stuff without this big commitment. Because if I, if I write a whole novel about an idea, it's six months of time, you know. Whereas a short story, it's a week. And so between novels, I wind up writing a lot of short stories um, to get these different ideas. And Because there is going to be another Grim Noir trilogy, but I says 1950s, generation later, and I've already got two short stories that I've written in that setting. So it's still Grim Noir, but just move forward a generation. Um, but I've written two different short stories, which will be in the next volume, um, specifically to give me a chance to play with different characters and different ideas um, before I develop them into novels. So uh, one thing about these short stories is sometimes you'll read a short story that I, I wrote years ago and you'll be like, oh, hey, I, can, I see what you did with that years later, you know, when it turned up in this other book. Now, that, that actual idea got developed in a different way or blown up more. So I, know that's, I, 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 like, I like doing them. <laughs> I'm just going to keep on yeah. making them, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's really, I mean, it's a, it's a way of using that, all those great ideas that you couldn't quite get in the books. Yeah. 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 So I've got some really cool ones in here that I got to play with. And then I, and like I said, the second one too, I'm, I'm really excited for, uh, this one's got some of the, some of the, my older stories and, uh, I, I tried to spread it out too. So I have some, some of the stories I wrote when I was first starting out and some of my newer ones. And I tried to do that in the second one, too, um, with, with the same thing, that division. Um, though the second one, I've got ones that are more are, are newer because a lot of times when I write a story for somebody else's specific universe, they have like an exclusion period where like for the next year or two years, I can't reprint it anywhere else. 
Um, so, so obviously the as the, as the volumes go on, they get newer. But uh, I do try I do try to mix it up a little bit, and it's kind of fun too to see the difference between one I wrote, you know, a story I wrote almost a decade ago versus a story I wrote a year ago, and that that's just you know that's just practice, basically. Yeah, and the, the, your your world has changed. For instance, your daughter uh, in in this one has uh, gotten of the age where she wants to 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 write herself, um, and there's a couple of stories in here that. Um, that have input from from Hinkley, your daughter, right? Uh, just the one uh, in this one. Um, I, she's actually written another story for me since. Um, I'm editing another anthology. It'll come out next year. It's called Noir Fatale, and that's edited by me and Casey Ezel. Uh, and my daughter wrote a short story about a Japanese ghost hunting detective in, in that one. Um, but... But in this, in this anthology, or in this collection, the uh, Target Rich Environment, we have an all-new story, and it's called Blood on the Water. And uh, what it is is there's another story in there. It's called Bubba Shackelford's Professional Monster Killers, which I wrote myself, and it's the origins of the Monster Hunter um, setting. In the, it's Bubba Shackelford, who is the original founder of the company that became Monster Hunter International. He's the the great grandpa of the Shackelford clan, you know, the family that, uh, that the series is really centered around. Um, so I wrote that story and it was basically cowboy MHI. And, but a lot of the characters in that story were based upon a role-playing game that I played with my kids. Um, we had played a, a deadlands, uh, deadlands role-playing game. And, uh, so it was kind of a weird West cowboy game. And, and my son had a character in there that I wound up, using as a, as a as professional monster hunter. And my daughter, Hinkley, who co-wrote this other story, with me, had a character named Hannah Stone. Uh, Hannah Stone was a trick shooter in Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show. And in her mind, she's better than Annie Oakley. She thinks she's a better shooter than Annie Oakley, only Annie Oakley's a star. And that she's really good at smiling and talking to people, and she's friendly and charismatic. Hannah is terrible at charisma. Hannah cannot talk to people. She's antisocial. Um, she scowls at everyone. She doesn't smile. She's paranoid and suspicious. <laughs> so Hannah gets fired from Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West show and um, meets Bubba Shackelford and decides that she's going to become a professional monster hunter. And she's going to be the first female professional monster killer. And, uh, and she's just dead set on that. And so that was a story that I wrote. Well, but this is based on my daughter's character. Um, so my daughter came to me and she said, Dad, I want to write a, mon- I want to write a Hannah Stone story. I want to write a story. Uh, I want to write a Monster Hunter story from the perspective of Hannah Stone. So I was like, well, okay, let's do it. And so uh, that's really, this story is, um, it's a collaboration, but it's by far more her than me. Uh, but then, you know, I'm the experienced one. <laughs> so I came in and, you know, cleaned it up and helped her out and, you know, fixed it up and turned into a really cool story. And so uh, we've got two stories in there that are the Bubba Shackelford story, and then we have what happens in the weeks immediately after is uh, the story co-written with my daughter called Blood on the Water. And they actually actually come out to Utah and hunt the Bear Lake Monster, which is a local, uh, local monster legend here where I live. And the reason no one's seen it in a long time is because Bubba Shackelford killed it. <laughs> With a little help from uh, 
Hannah Stone, yeah. But yeah. Hannah, Hannah is a, Hannah is a blast. She's a lot of fun to write, and she's just kind of this really surly anti-social monster hunter um, who's just like, uh, but she can shoot, and like she can shoot really yeah, good. And even even under pressure. Yeah, and so we, so that was a lot of cool. And, was, and plus, for my daughter, it was a good experience. It was her first professional publication because she'd been writing for a while under a pen name. Um, so you know, she's got a little bit of experience. And she's off at college now, and she's you know sold other short stories. But yeah, her, she's got one in tar, she's got one in Noir Fatale for me and Casey Uzel, which is really cool. That's cool. So basically, you stole her IP, and so you paid her back by writing a story with. <laughs> well, no, no, I was the ga- I was the game master. It was the kid. She was playing in my she was playing in my game. <laughs> I see. I see. Okay. Yeah, but it was her character. She made she made Hannah up. So. Yeah. And your son played the uh, is the is the Irish dude, right? Yep, skirmish uh, Mortimer McKillington. Like, uh, Mortimer Skirmish McKillington was my son's character, um, and uh, he's just a big Irish brawler. Now the other there's another character which will show up later in the in the Bubba Shackleford stories. We plan on doing some more. Uh, who's based on my other daughter's character, but I can't give away too much about that one, about her yet. But uh. really cool stuff. Yeah, their uh, origin stuff for for the Monster Hunter. So anybody that's a Monster Hunter reader will want to uh, will want to check these out. See, they're they're fun. I mean, I think the, I think the regular fans of the Monster Hunter series will really like these. Yeah, the one of them that got to me uh, <laughs> is the Father's Day gut punch. Um, oh, because I'm not scared of much, but you know something happening to my kids is just the thing that terrifies me too. So. You know, that is so you honestly, go for it, truthfully, yeah. one of the best stories I've ever written um, as far as um, emotional impact. And uh, yeah. that one comes from an anthology called Shared Nightmares. And it was basically, it was, it's another horror. It's, there's two horror stories in this anthology, and that's the other one. Um, we talk about the Cthulhu one. This one's also science fiction. It's an alien invasion story. Um, but the the whole thing was we were supposed to write about whatever, like, scared us the most um you know and but as, as a father um the stuff that scares you the most is basically anything that it threatens your children and um i just tr- i wrote a story that i tried to capture that and oh my gosh that story is a like i said it's a gut punch man <laughs> every every parent i know who's read that story is like oh man yeah can you set it up just a little bit um I mean, don't give out, you know, give away this, the conclusion or anything, but what's, what's, what's going on here? Well, it's actually kind of a post-apocalyptic story. It takes place in Baltimore, um, and what it is is um, there's been an alien invasion, but it's, it's, it's unlike, you know, anything we expected in that these aliens don't, they don't actually exist in the same dimension. They don't exist in the same reality as we do. So we, we can't see them. We can't physically see them. We can't physically interact with them. But they are basically bombarding our world. And how they do that is through um, basically psychic attacks. It's mental attacks. Um, and, you're, and, and human beings are vulnerable, especially when you're sleeping. Um, they basically get into your heads and just start to screw with you. Um, and we didn't even know we were under attack until, you know, a third of the Earth's population had died horribly. Um, and they were just causing all sorts of trouble. We don't understand them. We don't understand what they're going for. Uh, but what we did discover is there is a small contingent of people who do have the ability to fight back. They have a, um, 
uh, the capability of fighting back. And so in this situation, we have these people living in like these little compounds scattered around of the uh, remain, you know, what in what's left of the United States, um, the the government is is um, is partially collapsed, but what remains has become this kind of like totalitarian nightmare. But everything it does is dedicated towards fighting this alien menace by any means necessary. Um, the main character is this guy that lives in uh, in this compound in what used to be Baltimore, and uh, but his daughter. Uh, is one of those rare people that can fight back against the aliens. And she's six years old. And what it is is the government uh, wants her. The government is going to take her because she is a valuable resource in the war against the aliens. Um, and and they, they, so the government needs to take her to use her for uh, the battle. And so it's just kind of this father's story stuck between uh, a really uncaring government, and uh, uncaring and desperate government, and um, horrible space monsters. <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's, it's just a father and his family um, stuck stuck between a rock and a hard place. And yeah. it, it's, yeah. it's 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 good. It's a good story. I think it's one of the best ones I've ever read. Yeah, it's a it's a wrenching story. So um, a couple other things. Uh, the uh, let's talk let's talk about. Another action adventure kind of story is set in uh, um, Jonathan Mayberry's world. Uh, Mayberry's world. The uh, it's force multiplier, and it has an interesting sort of uh, origin as well. I mean, it's a cool story about vampires, uh, but the the way that you uh, that you present the vampires and the way that you thought of the story was kind of cool from your notes. Can you tell us a little about that? Sure. Um, and that one is set in, yeah, so it's set in Jonathan Mayberry's V-War universe, which is a shared universe, uh, which is actually being developed right now uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel as a TV show um, starring Ian Summerlander as uh, as the doctor, as the main doctor, uh, uh, Dr. Swan from the series. Um, so that's actually kind of cool. Uh, my character does not show up in the first season, as far as I know. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, so what it is is in this setting, uh, Jonathan had that the vampire myths come from uh, true stories throughout history, in that they they were real and it, they are human, but they have like a genetic defect or a genetic anomaly that makes them, you know, these vampires. But they were slowly hunted out of existence. Um, however, many human beings still have that gene dormant in them. Uh, and so in uh, melting polar ice, uh, this virus is released into the world once again, and th- this gene-altering virus that causes vampirism to rise up. And here's the cool thing, is that you know, there's all these different vampiric myths from around the world, and what it is is those are genetic-based. So like, if you have that and you're from, you know, your, your ancestors are from Eastern Europe, the way it would manifest would be in the traditional vampire ways. But if you were from, like, you know, West Africa, then it would your genes would manifest that way. Or if you were from China, it could be like, you know, the, the, the hopping vampire or whatever, or whatever the myths were of that native land because it was all genetic. Um, and so it was really interesting. So he has all these different weird kind of vampires start popping up in the world again. Um, and so the first book is kind of, um, uh, first collection is a, uh, was a bunch of, uh, it's, it's, it's like the rise of the vampires and the appearance of the vampires. And then the next book, it actually turns into a war between vampires and humanity. Um, 
and that's when I came in. And one of the things I wanted to do is I was looking at this and I was like, okay, this is a war. And I started thinking, okay, so in a war, you know, you're gonna have different types of people doing different kinds of things. But what, what would be really interesting and dangerous here? And remember earlier, I was talking about my technical advisor um, for Gen mm-hmm. Six. So this is when I actually worked out with him. So I contacted his name is Marcus, and I contacted Marcus, and I was telling him about this idea or, or what I was working on. Because um, I said, you know, a former Green Beret, and one of the things Green Berets learn is their force multipliers. Is you would drop a Green Beret off in a foreign or a group of Green Berets, we drop them off in a foreign country. They train the locals to fight, um, and they so they train insurgents. Um, and so I started thinking about this. Like, so what if you had a vampire or Green Beret? with all those skills and knowledge and all, all that background of training rebel groups to fight behind enemy lines, what if you had a vampire, one of those guys become a vampire? And so I created this character, and then I just I picked Marcus's brain, and I had to leave a lot of it out because it was like kind of like too scary, and I didn't want to put like ideas in people's heads about how to overthrow <laughs> governments. Um, it was... It was frankly kind of terrifying this character because his thing is he's like to go out there and just you know bite people and suck the blood and steal virgins or whatever this guy this guy this is a war he's in it to win it he's been trained for the last 30 years how to overthrow countries and he now has where he is going around and he's recruiting vampires and teaching them to fight uh and, and teaching them to be effective guerrilla warfare force only these people have basically superpowers they have super strength. They can, you know, some of them can do just amazing feats. Well, he starts, you know, putting this together like in a logical manner of, of like how to best utilize these people's skill sets. Um, you know, they have vampires with like you know mind influence, you know, mind controlling abilities and that kind of thing. Okay, well, I'm going to put you where you're the most useful. And and this guy basically fight. They start starts start fighting a, an insurgency, um, and so. Uh, part of the story is from his perspective, and part of it is the government trying to track him down. Because it's like, oh crap, we've been teaching this guy how to do this for 30 years, and now he, now he, all of a sudden, he turned into the enemy just by a fluke of a fluke of DNA. You don't do a lot of horror, but when you write some short stories, for you, you often end them with with sort of a, you know scary, open ended, ended. Uh, oh crap. <laughs> uh, sort of a conclusion sometimes. I like for the reader's imagination to keep going after the story is over. Um, the way, honestly, the way I look at it is that, uh, if I do my job as a writer, any short story that I write could turn into a novel. That, that's kind of how I look at it. Like, like if I've done my job, I can write that 10,000 words and people could read that and be like, I would, if this was a book, I'd read the book. Um, so that's just kind of what I go for. Um, and yeah. it's funny because you brought up Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan is really good, and I've done, I've done several stories for different things that he has worked on, and he's done several stories for me on things that I've worked on. Like he, uh, he wrote an Agent Frank story for me in the Monster Hunter Files. Great story, and we actually did a collaboration story um, that I that I hope if I if I, I can make sure I'm okay with the rights. Um, it's a collaboration story that I want to get into the next um, the next anthology. You close out the collection closes out with this thing that you did for um, it, it. It had a an, an interesting uh, creation cycle. Uh, the Adventures of Tom Stranger, interdimensional insurance agent, and it has some 
amazing one-liners in it, which, in, including my favorite, which is, it was time to kick ass and adjust claims. <laughs> so. Oh, Tom Stranger. Tom Stranger is one of the strangest, weirdest, goofiest, funniest things I've ever written. And uh, I got paid for this, which is the part that just blows my mind. Um, the first the first place anywhere that Tom Stranger was in print, or not in print, well, this will be the first time it's in print, um, but it was an Audible exclusive. So we did an audio book first. Uh, it was narrated by Adam Baldwin, who's you know a pretty famous actor. Adam is known for um, uh, uh, Firefly. He was Jane on Firefly. He was Agent Casey on Chuck. Um, he, he's, for the last five years, he's been on The Last Ship. A great actor, great guy. You know, he was animal mother in, uh, uh, oh gosh, what was it? Uh, Full Metal Jacket. Dude's brilliant, right? And uh, so I got this awesome narrator. He's funny as hell, great comedic timing. It's a fantastic audiobook. But how this all started was years and years and years ago, um, me and Mike Coopery, who is a good friend of mine, he's my co author on the Dead Six series, we were driving down the road. Uh, we were driving down Main Street in Layton, Utah. And um, off to the side where there was a sign for Tom Stanger Insurance. And, uh, and I, I misread that as Tom Stranger Insurance. And I was like, huh, Tom Stranger, that's weird. And Mike's like, well, why don't you sell interdimensional insurance? <laughs> and just that line, for that, for that line, Tom Stranger was born. And so I, I wrote this little silly goofy blog post about an interdimensional insurance agent named Tom Stranger. And the idea is the multiverse is real and all these different dimensions exist and they collide. So anything you can imagine exists somewhere out there as a reality. But every now and then these, these uh, realities bump into each other and that's when you need an interdimensional, insur- interdimensional insurance agent to come in and like, you know, fix everything. And, and, and someone has to pay for the damages. Um, so I wrote this really goofy thing, and at the time, um, uh, Adam Baldwin, I didn't, I didn't know him at all back then, and he had written some political articles. He's, he's a libertarian. He'd written some political articles that were actually very thoughtful and very academic, very intellectual, and uh, I got a kick out of that. So I needed, I needed someone to be president of the United States in this alternate reality. So I put Adam Baldwin as president, and I said that he was – and his political party was the Libertarian Space Cowboy Revolution. And so I put him in there. And then years later, I actually met him at Comic-Con, and, and uh, he's a great guy. I took him out to dinner, and I, and I had to tell him, he's like, yes, I've used you as a fictional character in his story. And he's like, okay, that's weird. And, uh, but then I, um, later on, Audible off, uh, offered to buy Tom Stranger from me. Um, it was so they could get Adam Baldwin to be the narrator uh, for this. So he narrates it, and he plays a, he plays himself. He narrates himself <laughs> in the book. <laughs> yeah. There are so many ways that this story is, is meta. <laughs> That's just so weird. Well, because I'm in it. Uh, I'm a character. You are. And, I, and, and the funny thing is, I do not cover myself in glory. I mean, I come off, I get my ass kicked in this story. And... Uh, and so we've done, we've done now two Tom Strangers, and there's a plan for a third one. And they're just short, and they're fun, and they're hilarious, and they're very political, and they're very silly. Um, but so what we did, so in this first one, we, we did this audio book, and, uh, and Barack Obama appears in it briefly. Uh, Barack Obama and Joe Biden are both in it briefly, and, and it's funny. 
I didn't really make fun of them that much. It's just they were there. I made fun of them as much as I made fun of everything else, right? But I got all these angry reviews. Well, the reviews were overwhelmingly positive, uh, but I had this handful of one-star reviews of people who were super offended, right? So we actually opened the second Tom Stranger, which will be in the next target-rich environment. We opened the second Tom Stranger with a customer service review panel where we go and we read the one-star reviews and we discuss it. The characters, in character, we discuss our one-star reviews from the previous adventure and how we could do better and how we could provide better customer service. And so... But but Tom Stranger doesn't understand the concept of people like being offended over politics. It's just alien to his world, and so he thinks yeah. the reason all the one stars are because we we used uh, we, we we said an insensitive slur against dolphins in the first. We said something. We said the dolphins were flippant and careless or something like that. So in the entire second book, the bad guys are dolphins. And it's all, and they're trying to be extra politically correct and sensitive, so as to not offend dolphins. <laughs> it's so bad. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, but the and so there there is going to be a third one though. Um, yeah, and so Tom is, yeah, Tom is like this green bow tie wearing Doctor Who sort of character who's. who's well, who's imagine like amoral. a hyper violent American version of Doctor Who. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's he's not the thing is like Tom, Tom's uh, he's got a moral he's got a moral code, but his moral code's not based on good or evil like ours. His moral code is based on customer service. Um, that's an alignment uh, that I haven't seen in D and know, right? He's Tom's got his own box off to the side, uh, but he's, yeah. it's all based upon providing quality customer service for his clients. And so his entire, like, everything in this, because at one point, I mean, there is actually good, there is actually evil Tom Stranger with a goatee, but they're exactly the same. Because right. <laughs> there's, there's just, good and evil just doesn't even enter into it. It's just like, am I serving, am I best serving the needs of my client? And, uh, but it's funny a second. So the, the voice Adam actually uses for him in the audiobook is the voice he uses when he does Superman, uh, for, for like Justice League, <laughs> it's so cool. Um, yeah, and then Wendell the Manatee is a reoccurring character too. Remember early we talked about the next cover we want to do where I'm holding yeah, Wendell yeah. the Manatee. Well, this is where Wendell comes from. Um, but Wendell actually has appeared on my blog as a fictional character in silly little short stories for many years. Uh, and, he, and anytime I've needed a spokesman, I've used my manatee, and he doesn't speak English, which makes it great. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so Wendell's a reoccurring, he's a major character in the Tom Stranger series. He's, he's 16, his, in his galaxy, he has like 65 million followers on Twitter. He's very popular. He speaks in, like, in, in long moans that some of the characters, like, are keep trying to get translated, but they, so we don't really know what he's saying, but it's rather important. He's, I mean, he's always referred to as the most eloquent of manatees, too. Cause, and basically, whenever Wendell speaks, everyone listens. Because he's just, he's got, he, he has gravitas, is what it is. That's right. Um, yeah. But, but it's funny, though, because Hoon, Hoon, we decided that in this series, Hoon is the battle cry of the manatee. And it's, it depends on how many O's it has in it for the nuance. 
But uh, uh-huh. Hoon has become like a, this recurring joke amongst my fans and other people in fandom. So um, a little while ago, I was on a panel, um, uh, I think it was a Comic-Con, or Salt Lake Comic-Con, and I was on a panel with uh, some other writers, and, and uh, Jim Butcher was one of them. And we were just talking about different stuff, and uh, I just mentioned something about Tom Stranger, and Jim Butcher sitting off the side, and he just goes, can I get a hoon? And the whole audience, or <laughs> half the audience, starts to hoon. And they're like, hoon. And the other half of the audience had no flipping idea what was going on. Um, well, then I've, heard, I've heard from Adam that now when he goes to like Comic-Cons or Dragon Con or whatever, and there's the Q&A session, you know, this is a, this is a famous actor. This guy has worked for Stanley Kubrick, right? And he'll be getting the Q&A session, and someone will always ask, you now, can you hoon for us? Or will you speak manatee for us? <laughs> and of course, you know, for his panels, you know, ninety percent of the audience has no idea what's going on, but he'll he will hoon for the audience. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to hear that. I haven't I haven't listened to this yet. I've got to uh, download this as well as. But reading it's fun too. The uh, one of the funny uh, bits is that. Um, and Tom doesn't ensure our reality because uh, because it, it just seems impossible that there should even exist a place where Firefly got canceled after one season, right? Yeah, it was like so. That's what like that's what our our galaxy is so backwards and screwed up is because of the cancellation of Firefly. Because in other galaxies, they got five they had five successful seasons and a trilogy of hit movies. And that's how Adam Baldwin got elected when the Libertarian Space Cowboy Alliance swept into power. <laughs> oh, and Arlie Ermey is the Secretary of Defense, too, which was just too awesome not to do. Um, only difference there is he had an eye patch. <laughs> yeah, there's there's so many inside fun jokes in here. And, and while your version of Larry Correa from our universe, you also do a joke on your name, which... Um, <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, there is a universe that exists where where you are the interdimensional uh, dictator of uh, the multi owner of a multinational weapons consortium. That Larry Curry is like so badass. It's like it's like it's like the super badass, awesome Larry Korea, and I'm like the lame, I'm like the lame, fat, dorky, bald writer <laughs> version. And like every time that one refer, you know, refers to me, it's like my, I, I, I'm like the dweeb. It's like, oh, it's that dweeb. <laughs> and that version's all ripped. He's like super buffed, and he has like a, this glorious full head of hair. <laughs> it's all long and flowing in the wind. <laughs> and he's forced them to rename the country the right way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, so he purchases North Korea and South Korea to avoid confusion, and he has them renamed <laughs> Gangnam Style and Commie Jerk Face Land. <laughs> That's right. Oh gosh, yeah, those are fun. Uh, yeah, those, yeah, those, are, those cool. were uh, those are. Uh, yeah, so there's there's going to be more Tom Stranger. We uh, we actually almost we, I got approached uh, some uh, somebody approached uh, about optioning the rights because I wanted to do a Tom Stranger cartoon, but what, what killed and they tried to they shopped it around to a lot of different places to make cartoons. But what killed us they they loved it, but 
uh, they were like, well, because Rick and Morty is really popular and it has interdimensional stuff. So we don't want to be seen as ripping off Rick and Morty. And the ironic thing is, is I've never watched that show. I've never seen a single episode. So, okay. <laughs> I've got no idea. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Maybe yeah. someday we'll get a we'll get a, we'll get a nice cool 3D cartoon space manatee. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. It's well, it's a, it's a wonderful piece. Um and it, the whole book is just uh just fun, uh full of uh pathos, bathos, sadness and and greatness and uh and a whole lot of really f- good fights. Um well well done. Um, there's other stories in here. I mean, we could talk about this for a long time. Um, I, I love the great sea beast. That was a fun story. Um, you did a tribute to David Drake. Yeah. Um, that one was a challenge because David Drake, I mean, I got to write him. I'm one of the only people to ever write hammer slammers other than David Drake. Um, and so I took that one real serious. I did my homework. <laughs> like pressure is on, you know? This one has to be good. Yeah, it's got a. I mean, it it has a, a twist ending that I think is wholly deserved. It's hardly not all twist endings get to you, but this one is is pretty good, I think. So. Yeah, and I, I was just I was like, how am I going to write Hammer Slammers? Because I mean, that, I grew up on Hammer Slammers, right? And so I, I I went from a different direction that I didn't write about the Slammers themselves. I wrote about the poor bastards who were on the other side. That was, that was the idea that I went for there. And uh, I think that one came out really good. Well, Dave Drake liked it. And so that's, yeah. for me, that was yeah. like a huge compliment because he's, Dave Drake's amazing. That guy is so good. Yeah. It had a Drake feel to it for sure too. The, the sort of um, the, the philosophical nature of the, <laughs> of the story felt like David Drake too. So, which is, um, which is really cool to catch. Um, I had a story in that anthology as well, which I was trying real hard to. The whole weariness and the, and the, and the, just the exhaustion. And yeah, I reread, I reread all the, I reread a bunch of Drake before I did that. Just was like, okay, don't screw this up, Larry. <laughs> no pressure. You're playing in, you're playing in the universe of one of the greats. Don't screw this up. <laughs> the great sea beast is, i mean it's not a it is uh i think it's the only story we haven't actually talked about maybe destiny of a bullet and the great sea beast um but i thought that was also um it it's it's about a man who is entirely obsessed with a, accomplishing this task that it, it that it both ruins and saves and creates his life yeah that one was a, that one was a powerful story. It was interesting because that one uh, was another one that I got ideas from role playing games, and you know, I, you know, you notice that's a theme for me. Um, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I thought that was a pretty powerful story, and that's one that was interesting because I got a lot of critical acclaim from that because um, it was entered into a uh, one of those big contests. It's blind judging, you know, with a lot of big name hoity toity literati fancy things and they're like wow you know so it was picked as one of the best and then the ironic part is later they revealed it was my name and they're like oh crap we voted for a larry Korea story and i was like yeah <laughs> yes you did uh-huh. but no it's uh i'm 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 really happy with how that one came out because it's just the story of this guy his whole life um 
has been based upon this one moment of tragedy when he's a kid, and it kind of uh, it kind of makes who he is. It sets his personality, and it, it basically ruins him for a long time until he just kind of decides he's going to do something about it. You know, nobody believes him. Everybody thinks he's nuts. He's a drunk. But by golly, he's going to prove his point. And he goes on. He just goes on an epic quest, basically out of spite. Um, and it's it, it's just it, it's it's kind of a samurai. It's a magical samurai Moby Dick story <laughs> against Super Godzilla. It's it's fun. That that's one I'm I'm really pleased with. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it really makes you you. I mean, a lot of times revenge stories. Um, a reader can have a hard time feeling as much as the characters, you know, were told that he feels. But you really get into his his motivation here, and you, you can feel the his need for revenge against this thing. You don't ever want to come out and spell it out. You know, you can't just say he really needed revenge. You know, you got to show it. And, uh, you know, I, I show it with this guy. This dude's messed up, but you, you love him anyway because he's such a badass. Yeah. You know? Well, here's here's an interesting tidbit. Um, so that character, uh, I wrote that, and then uh, a couple years later, I wrote another story out, but actually for the for Predator, for the IP, you know, the Predator movies. Um, and I actually am going to be able to. They'll let me because this is for the movie, you know, Fox. But they're going to let me reprint this in the next Target Rich Environment because it'll be after the exclusion period. There's a, a story where it's this guy's son. Because I mean, I, I said it in historical Japan. And so it's 12th century Japan. It's this guy, the, the son of the main character from Great Sea Beast, because you know he, he has a reputation. This is a this is a family that kills great demons. So this, these are samurai that fight demons, right? So he goes after the predator. It's a samurai versus predator story, um, and it's the son of the guy from Great Sea Beast. It's it's great. Um, that was a lot of fun to be able to write. So I'm getting to write in that universe. But, but, but the reason the, the forest of death in Japan, uh, the reason the forest of, jet, of death has this reputation is because in one really hot summer in the 12th century, there was the predator there. <laughs> so they never see it as a predator. It's, 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 the, Oni, it's the Oni of Akigaharu, or however you say it. And, and this guy, this guy who's the, this, this badass hunter from this family now, he has the bloodline where he's a hunter and a killer of monsters and demons. Yeah, so he goes after it. It's it's wicked cool. <laughs> That's cool. You you know you have a lot of um you do it in Grimnor and you do it a lot in your um in your high fantasy stuff as well as this uh you have you have attraction for eastern uh mythologies. Have you done some research in that area? Does it fascinate you in in some way because you you sure use it a lot? It's actually it's funny because it's it's I'm I like all of it, um, but but what it is is my main series being you know Monster Hunter primarily draws upon Western mythology the most, and so kind of like people don't think of that, but that's kind of like that that's the well I go to for that mostly, um, and so all my ancillary other stuff I will drift into every other culture I can think of to to borrow and steal liberally from. Um, like the son of the black sword is straight up, you know, that comes from India. Uh, 
love that, have so much fun with that. Uh, and then I, I've, I've revisited the, the Japanese mythology several times in different stories. Mostly that is because I'm a, I'm a samurai movie nerd. <laughs> I love samurai movies. Um, and so that's always been fun to write. And also one that um, I, I do a lot of homework on, so I've gotten a lot of compliments from people who actually, you know, that's the culture they hail from, that I don't just screw it up and have like an Americanized, um, idealized, you know, weeaboo version of of that culture, but I try to get it like a little more accurate. And um, the, the big one on that where I did research was for the, the character of Toru from Grim Noir. Um, I had to do my homework to get that right. But, but yeah, no, I borrow liberally from any culture I can think of. Uh, I've done a lot recently was, uh, I mean, geez, I can't even think of all the different ones I've done. Um, I borrow recently from the more recent Monster Hunter novels, the bad guy, and that comes from a Syrian Mesopotamian, or Mesopotamian, um, uh, mythology. Uh, geez, what else? I, I don't know. I, I, I thoroughly enjoy borrowing from whoever. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, you talk so about much cool um, stuff out there. Yeah, I mean, you talk about your your role playing game uh, influences a lot, and your, but you also you are a movie buff, right? I mean, and a lot of these short stories feel cinematic to me. Yeah, I'm a cinematic writer. It's one reason I think my stuff translates to audio really well and dramatic stuff. It's just it's the way my brain is wired. So I don't like slow moving languid fiction. Um, I have a really hard time, or, or like Larry Elmore told me one time when, because he was doing a cover for the cover for Son of the Black Sword. Um, he had a really hard time when he would read these fantasy novels back back in the '90s, and he get hired to do the cover, but the characters never went anywhere or did anything. They just talked about their feelings for 300 pages. And he says at the end of the book, they'd be in the same place as they were at the beginning of the book. He's like, "What the what the hell am I supposed to draw?" And I'm kind of the same way in that, like, I, I like stuff to happen. I need stuff to move. And so I tend, to, I tend to pace my books, even my epic fantasy stuff, I tend to pace it more at a movie pace. Um, there's got to be stuff. There's got to be visuals you can have in your head. Things have to move. Uh, the plot has to progress. You can't just spin your wheels and, and, and have internal dialogue about your feelings because that's boring. <laughs> I mean, it's boring to write. I can't imagine what it's like to try to read it. You know, I, would, I, would, I don't want to inflict that on people. But, you know, when you're doing short stories especially, you, you have such a limited amount of time to work. I mean, you're looking at 5,000 to 10,000 words. You've got to get in there. You've got to tell a story fast. You've got to hook them. You've got to give them, like, people to care about and a reason to care. And then you just got to, boom, you just got to go. And you just got to tell the bare bones. So... Uh, yeah, I, I do. I do tend to write cinematically. I've, I've been told that as a positive and, and as a negative in reviews. So I guess it just kind of depends on what people are into. Yeah, well, it's uh, I, it's certainly not the only aspect. And, and despite your poo pooing of all that literary stuff, you know, you sneak it in sometimes too, Larry. <laughs> you, oh yeah, no, you've got a, no, no. I, I'm you got a pretty I'm heavy all, thematic all side. Yeah, I, I do have I do have a, I do have that too. But uh, my thing is, I got to entertain stuff. you first. If I entertain you first, I can get away with anything. What are you working on now? Uh, oh, um, a couple things. I'm working on Monster Hunter Guardian. I just got back the edits because um, that's a co uh, <clears throat> that's a collaboration with Sarah Hoyt, who is an awesome author. Um, and I just got back her edits. 
So I'm going through and I'll be doing the final pass for Guardian. And uh, before I got back to those edits, I was putting together short stories for um, for Noir Fatale. I mentioned earlier with Casey Ezel, that anthology. And also I am working on, I'm uh, into the, the first uh, 25 or 30,000 words of um, Destroyer of Worlds, which is the third book in the Saga of the Forgotten Warrior. So it's, it's after um, uh, Son of the Black Sword and House of Assassins. So... Um, so I guess I'm simultaneously working on three projects. Cool, cool. So, yeah, I stay busy. Indeed, indeed. So uh, the book is Target Rich Environment, a collection by Larry Correa of short stories. Um, and they're all wonderful in various ways and incredibly fun and entertaining and meaningful and everything else you want in a short story. And uh, they're available now at booksellers everywhere. And, Larry, thank you so much for talking once again with us um, and uh, sh- and sharing some backstory on all these great stories. Well, cool. Thanks for having me on, Tony. I'll catch you later. This was part two in a two-part interview with Larry Correa discussing his short story collection, Target Rich Environment. Part one is available on last week's podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 6 18 Years Ago If you'd not been here to guide us, we would have frozen to death before we found this entrance. The directions we were given were flawed for this last part. It would have led us to the wrong part of the summit. Correct, Ashok, Ratul said as he knocked the ice from the hidden doors. They were cut from the stone and camouflaged so well that they could have camped on them and never known. The heart is the most vital possession of the order. Only those who pass the test may know the true location. It is possible that an acolyte may fail the test and flee the order. They have already demonstrated their lack of character. They could talk. What then? The solution was obvious. Execute them. Easier said than done in some cases. So it is better to deceive all the acolytes. Those who pass learn the truth. 
Should you ever speak of what you see beyond this point, your life is forfeit. If you are ever tortured for this information, it is better that you will yourself to die rather than give it up. If you ever tell of this place, you will be hunted down by the entire order and destroyed. For the heart is the source of our power. Ratul did something with his hands. It seemed as if he were tracing invisible pictures on the stone, but whatever it was, was hidden from view by his fur coat. The door should have been frozen solid, but it slid open with the grinding of stone against stone. Steep stairs led down into the mountain. Ratul started down, and they followed. It was good to get out of the wind, but Ashok didn't like how there was no visible mechanism for opening the heavy door inside. Regulated magic was legal, but he had an instinctive, personal distrust of the craft. Magic was made using the leftovers of broken ancestor blades and the remaining life spark of long-dead bearers. From this point forward, nothing you see can ever be spoken about with anyone who is not a protector of senior rank or higher. You have already given me your oath. Whether it be a chief judge, the highest arbiter in the capital, the Thakur of your house, or if the Forgotten himself descends from the heavens in a rain of fire and asks about this place, I don't give a damn. You will not speak with them about the heart. Understood? The Forgotten is imaginary, Lord Protector, Ashok pointed out. Damn boy, you are a literal sort. Come on. Ratul started down the stairs. The acolytes followed. Ashok was still having a hard time walking. His joint made a clicking noise in his pelvis with each step, and the pain was grating. The cuts on his chest burned, but the blood had dried to his undershirt enough to form a sort of giant cloth scab. So he was in no danger of bleeding to death. Devadas was keeping pressure on the laceration in his side, but the wound on his head was still slowly leaking through his hood. He was looking deathly pale, and had vomited a few times before, but Ratul had denied their requests to stop long enough to tend their wounds. Devadas slipped, stumbled down several steps, but caught himself on the wall before falling completely. Ashok grabbed him by the arm and helped him stand. Since one foot was numb, that almost caused both of them to go tumbling down the stairs. Some mighty protectors they were. He'd never been good at offering encouragement. Keep going. It's not far now, Ashok said anyway. You don't know that, Devadas whispered. I can still hear you, Ratul said from below. Your bodies are frail. Bones break, blood spills, and the law is deprived of yet another valuable enforcer. That's what the heart is for. When your own proves insufficient... It will beat on your behalf. But the boy is right, Devadas. It isn't much farther. The magic door ground closed behind them, plunging them into complete darkness. Footsteps told him that Ratul was still descending. Devadas muttered something incomprehensible, and then the two of them limped along after their instructor. The blindness was unnerving. The stairs continued. There seemed to be hundreds of them. 
Normally, Ashok was so focused he would have counted, but now he was too tired to think. Something was making his nose itch. The mountain had been almost sterile. In comparison, this place smelled old. It was quiet except for the scrape of their boots against the stairs, their gloves along the walls, and Devadas's labored breathing. Ashok was taking a lot of Devadas's weight now, as the older acolyte was having a hard time staying conscious. Stay with me, brother, Ashok pleaded, as Devadas's head wobbled around on his neck. If he went limp, they would fall. I'm not strong enough to carry you. Below them, Ratul began to whistle a tune. Then his footfalls changed. He'd left the stairs and reached a level surface. That gave Ashok hope. There was some rattling of metal on metal, and then the scrape of a fire starter. Thankfully, an orange light appeared. The glow spread as Ratul took the torch and touched it to a big fire pit. Whatever was in it was dry and immediately ignited. By the time he got Devadas to the bottom, the chamber was filling with light and heat. His skin prickled. They'd been cold for so long that the warm air felt like being stabbed with thousands of needles. Bring him this way, Ratul ordered, as he walked further inside and lit another fire pit. Ashok was having a hard time keeping up. I was told there used to be lanterns here that never went out, but all magic breaks down eventually. The lights died generations ago, yet we make do. I sense a parable about society there. Ashok stepped on an uneven part of the floor, and for whatever reason, that was enough. The strength went out from his injured leg. It crumpled beneath, and the two acolytes fell down. He hit the ground with a grunt. Oh, what now? Ratul muttered as he came back. He roughly rolled Devadas' older and lowered an ear to his chest. Hmm, this one is worse off than I thought. He's bleeding to death and doesn't have enough sense to complain about it. He did complain, Lord Protector. However, you didn't listen. We're going to have to work on that unflinching honesty of yours, Ashok. Ratul effortlessly hoisted Devadas up and put him over one shoulder. Wait here. I must get him to the heart immediately. The master carried off the other acolyte, leaving Ashok alone. He lay there on the hard floor for a time, flat on his back, letting his exhaustion seep from his body into the mountain. Ashok was incapable of fearing for himself, but it was interesting to discover that he could be worried about someone else's fate. He didn't want Devadas to die. Ashok had never had a friend before. Well, at least if you didn't count Angruvadal. But he wasn't sure if an ancient magic killing machine could actually be considered a friend. The fire pits cast just enough light to see the high ceiling of the chamber. This place may have started out as a cave, but it had been worked and polished until the walls were smooth. However, there was a large rectangular section on the wall above him that was intricately carved and casting odd shadows. It took his eyes time to adjust enough to figure out what he was looking at. It was a map. 
Ashok had seen many maps. Mindarin used them during his lessons and had several posted in the training room. He'd seen maps of house borders, of the trade routes between them, even maps of all of Locke, where great rivers were lines and cities were nothing but specks. Only this wasn't like any map he'd seen before. He couldn't figure out what house's lands it was showing. Something was wrong with this one. He couldn't place his finger on it, but the map seemed totally unfamiliar. Legal borders changed over time, but coasts and mountain ranges didn't. Then he picked out a few familiar shapes that would not have changed over time, like the Gujaran Peninsula and the western blob that was Utara, the northern and westernmost parts of their nation, respectively. Impossible, Ashok muttered as he forced himself to stand. His leg burned and threatened to betray him again, but he needed to get closer. Ashok found another torch on the wall and lit it from the fire pit. He placed himself directly beneath the gigantic map and held up the flame. This was a map of the entire world. Their nation, the entire world of man, took up but one small corner. There were several other lands across the seas, some far larger than theirs, and hundreds of islands in between. As he moved the flickering torch back and forth, he realized there were thousands of carved dots casting tiny shadows. A quick check of the one continent he was familiar with revealed that the holes seemed to represent cities. With the bigger the shadow, the larger the place. Most seemed to correspond to the seats of the houses today, though there was no capital in the center. And there were a few dots where there was nothing today, but most matched. They had to be cities. When he went back to examining the rest of the map, he realized there were thousands of dots spread across every landmass except for the ones at the very top and bottom. Impossible, he said again. Ashok couldn't say how long he stared at that map, memorizing every line, staring upward until the muscles in his neck began to ache and he got dizzy. It was easy to lose track of time when you found something so incomprehensible. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Jedkowitz. And a tub ring of sloughed souls left by a now squeaky clean elder god, along with frabjous shouts of Kalu and Calais and a large helping of Snicker Snacks for Larry Correa, author of Target Rich Environment. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 